Well, our reading today is from John chapter 6, and I invite you to find it in your Bible. It's on page 1056. I'll be starting actually at verse 32, John 6, 32. This is is a part of Scripture that is kind of like um, a car accident on the side of the road that Christians kind of look at with a little bit of horror, and then they try to move past really quickly. But So we're going to spend some time on it. I, are you all interested now? You're kind of like, what is this, what's this car crash that we're about to read? Well, it's, it's very interesting. It's very um, provocative, very offensive, very shocking. We'll see it in just a minute. But just a few words of introduction before we go to our reading. Jesus in chapter 6 of John has similar to the other Gospels, the other three Gospels, has just fed uh, thousands of people with just a little bit of food. That's one of the miraculous feasts of creation, creating something out of nothing, creating satisfaction out of want, creating a lot of food out of a little bit of food. And the people are so excited about this, and also they continue to be hungry because they ate, but, you know, you eat and you get hungry again. So they they follow Jesus around this lake. It's called the Sea of Galilee, but it's really not a sea. It's, a, it's so small you would really want to call it a lake. They follow him around the lake, and they're looking for some more food. So Jesus uses the opportunity to talk about the kind of food that he can really give them that will last longer than a day. And he uses the term that they should eat his body and they should drink his blood. He says that, not just once, but a second time for emphasis and with clarification. We'll see it. Now, in our, kind of in English, we could use the word eat, and there's some nuances and some idioms that we have around it that could sort of soften it. So we could say something like, you know, our child is so cute. You say, oh, I could just eat you up. You're not going to eat your child, but they're just so cute. You know, they're so sweet. You could just eat them up. Or you could say, I had to eat my words right? Because I said something that was unsubstantiated, so I had to eat those words. Or if somebody like a stockbroker loses a lot of money, then they had to eat that loss, didn't it? So we use the word eat to kind of have a lot of different meanings, more than just putting food in our mouth and going into our body. Um, And there are idioms in, um, in Greek and Aramaic, the languages that Jesus spoke, but there aren't as many. So the reality is that when Jesus is talking about eating something, he, there's a good chance he actually means eating something. But we'll get into it. Very interesting. So, um, but I'd say it's a good bet that when Jesus says eat in what we're about to read, it has something to do with our bodies. It has something to do with our lives. So with that introduction, let's go to our reading. John chapter 6, verse 32. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, It is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, this is the crowd, from now on, give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. 
And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. At this, the Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling amongst yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, They will all be taught by God. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. I tell you the truth, he who believes has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died, but he who feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does this offend you? What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. From this time... Many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. And we ask that you would add your blessing to it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just as a quick survey, was anyone uncomfortable uh, hearing this read? Yeah, 
Anyone, is there anyone for which this, they've never heard this before? Maybe if you're younger or, yeah, yeah. Did you know our Bible was just kind of that, a little creepy? It is. I want to go through some of the images that Jesus um, introduces here in this passage. And then I'll hopefully we'll tie it together a little bit and try to figure out exactly what he's getting at when he's talking about his flesh and his blood. First off, we have this idea that Jesus is the bread of life. That he's this thing that is better than the bread that came down from heaven when the people of Israel were wandering in the wilderness. You may remember that story from Exodus. It really is a very powerful story about God's presence and reliance on God's provision, his providence. Because the people were out there in the middle of nowhere. They, they used to live in Egypt, and they would say things like, oh, we loved Egypt. It was full of melons and onions, and we could eat our fill down by the Nile. And here we are out in the middle of the desert. I've been to the Sinai Peninsula. There is nothing there. It's just sand and a few camels. That's all there is, and some rocks. I, there's, there's nothing that would sustain the life of a group of thousands of people wandering through it. If you put a thousand people out there right now and told them to march, for even a few weeks, only a very few of them would actually get where they're going. There's nothing to eat. It's a very harsh environment. Into that environment, God sent every day this thing called manna. And actually, that the people said that's what the word means. They, like, they said, what is this stuff? And that's what the, where we get the word manna. It means, what is this? It's this stuff that landed on the ground, and they could scoop it up, and it tasted sweet. It was good. It filled them up. Sometimes quail would come and land and, and not run away, and they would just pick them up and eat them. And so every day this stuff would fall except for on the Sabbath. And the people would have, they would gather it up, and they would eat it that day, and then they'd be full for that day. It was enough for one day. Now some of the people, they thought, well, let's isolate the source of this and kind of start our own manna business. And so let's gather up extra and maybe we can sell it on other days or we don't have to re- then we don't have to gather it on another day and we don't have to rely on God so much. But when they did that, it went bad. God, it's almost like God wouldn't let them do that. God wa- wanted to keep them in a place where they were depending on him for daily for, for the manna. The only exception to this was they could gather a double portion on the day before the Sabbath and it wouldn't go bad then. And then they'd have enough for the Sabbath day without, so they wouldn't have to work on the Sabbath gathering, and they'd have enough. So Jesus is using this image with the people that he's talking to and said, I just fed you a lot of food. You followed me over here. You're looking for more food. This could go on forever unless we do something differently, right? I mean, we, we can't. I, he's got, I've got places to go. I can't do this every day. I'm sorry. I have, other, I have other appointments in my date book here. I can't make you guys a meal every day. I think what I need to do is give you some bread that will last you forever. Then you don't have to keep coming. Now, what kind of bread is he talking about? He's talking about himself. He keeps saying this over and over again. I am the bread of your life, of, of bread of life and your life. Your forefathers were gathering in the wilderness and they needed to do it every day. They, their stomachs got full and then empty again and full and empty again. What I'm offering you here is something that will last forever. I'm offering you the bread of life. I'm offering you my very self. The people kind of misunderstood where he was going with that. Though. How, can we, how can we do that? And that's a very common theme in John is that people often misunderstand what Jesus is saying. So Jesus has to explain it. Or it remains a bit of a mystery. Another image that comes up 
in this reading twice, and, and as you, if you remember from some of the other uh, times I've preached, this is one of my favorite Greek words, is the people started grumbling about this. The, the Greek word for that is gogizo. They were gogizoing. They were grumbling. And it's, it's an onomatopoetic word both in English and in Greek. Oh, they were grumbling. They were grumbling because they were saying to themselves, how can this guy say this? We know him. He grew up in the town, just one town over. Isn't this Jesus? We know his mother and his father. We saw her change his diapers. He's really not that much. And here he is saying, I've come down from heaven. I have this direct line to God. I'm going to save the world through my body. Who is he? And they were grumbling about, him, about it. And then they grumbled again later when he explained to them that what he was going to feed them was his actual flesh and blood. So there's this image of people saying to themselves, how can this person do this thing that he's promising? We don't understand it. Now we get finally to this, this imagery, which I think is, is really one of the most powerful images in all of the Bible, certainly the most powerful image in this passage, which is Jesus not as a throwaway line, but really as in a repetitious way and in, an, in a strengthening way each time he says it. He says, you need to eat my flesh and you need to drink my blood. And in case you were thinking that I was being kind of uh, using an idiom or being symbolic, he says, my flesh is real food. My blood is real drink. Uh, so that's the imagery there. But it's not imagery. That's the thing. He reinforces it up to clear up any con con confusion about it. And he keeps coming back to this idea that he's the bread of life. His flesh is the bread that is coming to the world so that people can, can stop trying to feed themselves every day but have something that will last forever. Now, it strikes me that when we encounter God, we really have very similar reactions to these people 2,000 years ago. Really, nothing changes in the world. I mean, we look at what Jesus does for us, what Jesus promises us. He promises us this outflowing of grace, which is enough for every day. And we kind of get tired of going back to God every day to receive that grace and to receive that life that he wants to give us. And instead, we somehow think that we can control that source and store up enough for ourselves so that we don't have to come back to it all the time. And we grumble. Um, sometimes I'm not really sure Jesus can pull off what he's offering. I'm not sure Jesus could forgive my sins. I don't think he's up to it sometimes. Um, or at other times, I don't think my sins are really important enough or big enough for him to actually worry about. I go from both sides. I'm in the whole spectrum here. So I grumble against Jesus because I only think he's big enough to take care of my sins, or I don't think my sins are big enough for him to worry about. And I grumble in my own way. And then sometimes I just don't like what Jesus says. I find it offensive. I find it troubling or, or disturbing. When he says this, and you might have caught that, um, when he, especially when he starts talking about his body and his blood and eating it and drinking it, the disciples, not the people following him, because they've probably already checked out by now, but these are his disciples, not the 12, but a larger group of disciples that have been following around here, maybe hundreds of people that have really been hanging on to every word of his and were, were potential uh, disciples or disciples, kind of argued about what this meant and found it so difficult 
that it says at this point, many of the people who had been following his disciples, him as, their, as his disciples, just left. They said, this is too weird. I don't like this. I don't like this teaching. This is too hard. Um, and so Jesus radically reduced the number of people that were actually following around on that day just by what he said. In the 80s, maybe the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, it's still going on. In the American church, at least, we have something called the church growth movement. Sounds great, right? Let's get the church bigger. Let's get more people in the pews. Let's get more people. Let's have more programs. Let's, make, let's maybe water some things down that are a little difficult, and then more people will come in. Let's offer something for the kids and the worship and uh, for everybody. That's the church growth movement. And evidently, Jesus isn't really interested in that. Jesus is interested in the church reduction movement, and he does it very well. In one day, he manages to wipe out a huge number of people who are following him and get his church down to about 13 people, him and the 12 disciples. That's it. What's amazing is he doesn't seem particularly anxious that this has happened. He doesn't seem to say, well, who's going to staff all the boards now? Who's going to teach Sunday school? He's not asking these questions. He's almost doing this on purpose. He's pruning his own church. He's getting it down to a size where it can really actually go and do something. I'm getting goose pimples thinking about it. Jesus reduced the size of his church to make it even more effective. Think about what happened at Pentecost. We celebrated that last week. The disciples go out into Jerusalem because the Spirit has come upon them and they start speaking all these languages they don't know. The, the Spirit moves through them. Jesus calls all these people and the, the only thing that they have going for them is they're open to the movement of the Spirit in their lives. They're not particularly smart. They're not particularly reliable. They're not particularly virtuous people at all. Their one thing that they have is that they're available to Jesus and they're available to the Spirit's power to work and that's all Jesus needs. He only needs 12 people like that. They go out on Pentecost and they start preaching the gospel. And those people who hear it go back to their home countries. And from 12 people, one person to 12 people, to millions and billions of people in this world now who are followers of Jesus. Now granted, it took 2,000 years, but that's still pretty good growth. It's still pretty good. Jesus had to get it down before it could go up. Jesus had to offend some people so that the ones who really cared could go and do what he said. And the, the, really, the really striking thing is he says to the 12, after everybody else kind of, there's like a stampede of people that leave and the dust kind of settles and all that's left are the 12. And Jesus looks at the 12 and he says, do you all want to leave too? Is it, you know, just what have you done for me lately? Or, you know, is the other shoe going to drop now? And Peter, this is one of his best moments, you know. He's got some rotten ones, but this is his best moment. He says, where are we going to go? We've got nothing else. Only you have the words of eternal life. It's one of the best parts of the scripture right there, where Peter makes that confession and profession of faith. There's only one more thing I want to talk about with this, and that's this little part where Jesus says to the people who are, who are listening and grumbling about his words. He says this. He says, does this offend you? Does this offend you? 
The Greek word for that, or really is, do you take offense? It's more of a verb in a sense. Is it, do you take offense at what I'm saying? Is the Greek word skandalizo. Skandalizo. It's just like our English word for scandalize. It's got the same morphology and everything. And the, the word, the verb form, or the, the noun form of it is just skandalon, a scandal. Is this a scandal to you? Does this scandalize you? Does this offend you, what I'm saying about my body and my blood and what I'm going to do for this world? There's a depth of meaning about this word that, that he says. It, it means to cause someone to fall away or to desert a movement and and in theological terms, to fall into sin, potentially. Are, are you going to fall into sin because of what I said to you today? Another meaning is, the way it's translated here, is to be an offensive thing, to cause an offense or to make something offensive. That's how we have it in our New International Version that we read this morning. The largest sense of all in the New Testament of this word is to make someone stumble, that would be the verb form, but the noun form would be to put a stumbling block in the way of somebody else. Jesus is saying, is, is this teaching about my body and blood, is that going to make you stumble and fall down? Is it going to make you fall away? Is it going to offend you so much that you leave me? And the answer was, of course, many of them did. The world listens to what Jesus has to say, and they're completely offended. I mean, it, just think about what we just read, right? And I asked if some of you were uncomfortable with it, right? And I, I saw a few hands go up. Um, and I don't... Uh, I'm not going to actually get into whether we actually eat, eat Jesus' body and drink his blood. That may not really be the most important question here. But it has something to do with our body. It has something to do with our participation with Jesus Christ. It has actually a whole lot to do with his body and flesh being broken for our sake on the cross and for his blood to flow out of him at the cross to wash us of our sins. It's this invitation to be incredibly intimate with Jesus and let him do that for us. It's this invitation to admit that we actually need him to do it for us, that we're such sinners that we don't have any hope that we could actually go to heaven or have eternal life unless his body is broken for us and his blood is poured out for us. So I think the most offensive thing about this is that he says, I, and really saying is, I want to be so close to you that you can taste me. I want to be so close to you that I'm closer to you than your own heart. I want to be in you I almost want to enter your body through your mouth so that I can become part of you and become incorporated into you in all these amazing sort of incarnational and intertwined ways which are sort of mysterious and amazing. I want to give up my body and my blood so that you can live, and not just for a day, but forever and ever. And I want you to understand that what I'm giving you in my body and blood is going to nourish you and feed you and that you can't have life without it. So this stumbling block is a way that Jesus actually divides people. He talks about the stumbling block in other parts of the scriptures. He says, he says the stumbling block, which is the scandal of the cross, 
of who he is, the incarnation coming into the world, is really going to trip a lot of people up. Some people are going to trip and they're going to fall. And on top of them, that, that stone will actually fall on top of them and smash them, he says. They're going to trip over it and be smashed and it will fall on top of them and smash them. So this stumbling block is a, is a dangerous thing. It's a scary thing. Why would Jesus put this in the road? He actually wants us to have to deal with this thing in our path. He can't let us just walk glibly forward and hope for the best. He has to put his cross directly in our way, the scandal of his cross, the scandal of him giving himself for us in such an incarnational way. He has to put that in our way, and it forces us to do one thing or the other with it, to be offended by it, to stumble over it, or to have the response that the disciples had. We can't go anywhere else. This is what will truly sustain us. These are the words of eternal life. Some people aren't offended by this offense, but they embrace it. They see a feast in it and they can't wait to start eating. They eat with gusto. It's like a cooking show on TV. Like, ah, we love food. Well, that's great, Jesus says, because I've got plenty of heavenly food to feed you. Eat until you're full and you'll never be hungry again. There's people in this world that welcome this kind of closeness and intimacy with Jesus because they're so desperate in their sin and their constant need for his mercy and help. They just know they need it. And they welcome the stumbling block. This is how I see it. Either people stumble and they fall on the stumbling block. Or would you imagine this little chair here again? They either trip over this thing or they climb up to the top of it and they use it to launch themselves into Jesus' arms. Oh, I'm about to do it. It's more like Katya there, the little step instead of the jump. Either they stumble over it or they launch themselves into Jesus' arms, his arms of grace, his arms of love, his arms of acceptance and hope. Now listen, you're here. I think you're here. Because at some point, this wasn't offensive to you, but because this was something you wanted. It's something you jumped into with your arms wide open. You jumped into Jesus' arms. You ate and you drank this feast that Jesus gave you, and you didn't hold your nose while you did it. You didn't spit it in your napkin and hide it under the table. You relished this meal with gusto because God gave it to you through Jesus Christ. You're here because the feast of Christ has nourished you and it nourishes you still. So that's good for you. That's good for this body. That's good for this room. The great news is that God is not done with the rest of the world yet either. This block hasn't crushed everyone yet. It hasn't divided the world completely. There's still time. God really wants people to turn away from their offendedness and turn towards the sun. That's what he did with the Apostle Paul. He, God wants people to stop tripping and start leaping, is my sense. So here's what I want us to do. I want you to take someone's hand. You can probably think about it today, who that person is. I want you to help them up on top of the stumbling block. And I want you to show them what a beautiful Savior you have. 
I want you to make them hungry somehow for what only Jesus can feed us with. And I want you to stand on that block together and plunge yourself at Jesus holding hands and then do it again and again and again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus has given himself for us so that we could be nourished by the bread of life. Amen.